Our second scripture passage is from the book of Job, chapter 8, verses 1 through 7 and 20 through 22. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. The word of the Lord. This month, we've been looking at suffering and God. What do we do with suffering and God? And we're looking at the book of Job. The problem with the book of Job is this. It is ancient. It's really old. And it's hard to relate to just the type of world they're talking about. The book of Job is also extreme. If you look at the things that happen to Job in one bad day, that does not happen to anybody in one bad day. It's a little too extreme. And if you read through the book of Job, it gets incredibly philosophical. And at times, that just feels abstract and distant. See, what we're really asking is, what about when bad stuff, when evil happens to us? What do you do when your team loses because of you, when your company downsizes and you're now out of work, when every one of your friends gets in but you get a rejection letter from the college of your dreams, what do you do when you get the news that you have cancer? Or when tragedy is not something in the newspaper but it strikes your best friend, your wife, your child. We want to know why. Why does suffering happen? And you know, the reality is humanity has always done this. Boston University sociologist Peter Berger notes this. Every culture has provided an explanation of life that bestows meaning upon the experiences of suffering and evil. Every culture throughout history, regardless of religion or not, has tried to find a way to make sense of suffering and evil. University of Chicago anthropologist Richard Schweder made it a little simpler. He said, human beings apparently want to be edified by their miseries. We are looking for meaning. But the questions aren't just academic and philosophical. When it comes down to it, they're really personal. It's this question, why is this happening to me, God? Why is this happening to me? And so we need to ask the question, how do we, how do you, how do we make sense of suffering? Let me give you a couple of approaches. One is the no God or atheist approach. You see, the idea is this, you must reject God because suffering and evil prove God cannot exist. If there is an all-powerful, all-good God, how could he allow the suffering and evil that we see? 
Now, of course, the atheist approach doesn't have any better answers. The atheist approach, if you're gonna have integrity of thought, like Nietzsche did, like Hume pointed to years before that, is this, life is meaningless. Your pain and death are meaningless. It's bleak, sorry, get over it. Most people, if you went around outside today, would have some view of a God, some version of God. It's actually usually a deistic view. It's this view that there is a God, we just don't really know him that well. And when suffering happens to people who have some knowledge of God, some idea, but haven't really pinned it down, there's usually a lot of confusion or despair. And that's because as modern Americans, our view of God is that God exists to meet our needs. And the goal of life is to be happy. This is a rather thin view of the nature of God and the purpose of life. And it's a rather fat view of the place of ourselves in this world. I'm not going to talk extensively about the atheist or deist view. We'll look at that next week. Instead, we're going to look at the third response to suffering, and it's the religious or karmic view. And it's this one. Be kind, be a good person, believe in God, and then God owes you a good life. This is the view of the three friends who come and surround Job with their wisdom in the book of Job. Here's the story. Job has all these horrible things happen to him in Job chapter one and two. And then this beautiful picture comes along at the end of chapter two that some of you noted last week when we read this, or two weeks ago, I guess. It's that these three friends, these old men, friends of Job, come from afar and they come and they see him. They don't even recognize him. And they come and they sit down with him in silence for seven days, suffering with Job in silence. Then Job opens his mouth a word of lament in chapter three of Job. And then from chapter four for the next 20 to 25 chapters, what you actually have is a dialogue that is the three friends interacting with Job. They're providing their wisdom and insight, and then Job responds, and they repeat one after the other. Our chapter eight that we read here today gives us a summary of it. And the summary is this. It's the religious view. And you see it in verse three and verse four of Job chapter eight. This is what we read. Does God pervert justice? It's an implication of no. God doesn't pervert justice. God is just, right? Okay, here's how it plays out according to one of the guys who's speaking to Job. If your children have sinned against him, against God, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. The religious view is this. Since all of your kids died, they must have been sinning. There's a solution to the problem you're in, Job. Bildad, the guy speaking says in verses five and six, we see this. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, in verses five and six, if you are pure and upright, surely then God will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Job, the problem is this. You need to pray more. You need to be good. If you pray harder and if you're really good, God's gonna bless you. That's how it works. We all know this. It's the business God is in. Like a Geico commercial, it's what God does. You're good, he blesses you. You're bad, he punishes you. So stop being bad, be good. 
And then the summary statement that could really summarize the, the wisdom of the humanity of Job's day is in verse 20. God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. God is with and blesses the blameless, the faithful, and God is not with, he curses or brings judgment on evildoers, on sinners. So Job, repent of your sin and be good. And Job, of course, throughout the whole thing says, but I didn't do anything. And the three friends, this, this doesn't fit their categories. It doesn't fit their religious view of theology. Job, just admit you sinned. And maybe God will bless you. This is what actually theologians call retribution theology. Retribution theology. Suffering, any kind of suffering, is God punishing sin on some level. Because God blesses the obedient. So if you are suffering, then you must have sinned. This is actually very much what what we get from Jesus, or not from Jesus, in Jesus' day. It was the same thinking. Over a thousand years later, the people in in the New Testament were still thinking this way. In In John chapter 9, the disciples are walking along with Jesus, and they come across a man who was born blind. And what do the disciples ask? Who sinned to cause this man to be born blind? Did he sin or did his parents? Somebody sinned or else he wouldn't be born blind. Jesus has to push against and correct that false understanding of the economy of God. It comes across backhandedly in Luke chapter 18. Maybe you've never really thought through this, but the implications of Jesus' interaction with a rich young ruler is a theology of retribution. Here's the way it goes. Jesus is is standing there teaching, and a rich man who is faithful comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, okay, obey all the commandments. The man says, I've done all that. Jesus challenges him and says, okay, what about what's on the center of your heart? What is truly God, your money? Will you give up all of that? The man says, no. He walks away sad. And then Jesus makes this statement. You know the statement if you've heard it before. You don't have to repeat it with me, but it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And what do the disciples say about that? Who then can be saved? Think about the implications of that. The implications are if somebody is wealthy, if somebody is wealthy, it's because God has blessed them. God blesses people who are good and faithful. If the rich can't get into the kingdom of heaven, who can? And Jesus is trying to overturn their entire view of how God works, how salvation works. It's not, as they thought in that day and age, wealth, prosperity, success meant God was blessing you because you were good. He had to overturn that notion to be able to intervene with the notion of grace, that we are all in need of God's mercy. Retribution theology, or the religious view, could be summed up in the laughable wisdom of Jack Handy. Jack Handy was famous for his deep thoughts that came to view because of Saturday Night Live in the early 90s. This is one of his. He said, if a kid asks where rain comes from, I think a cute thing to tell him is, God is crying. And if he asks why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is, Probably because of something you did. (laughs) 
many of us actually subscribe to this view implicitly. It's the religious view. We see it in phrases like, pay it forward. Or, you know, what goes around comes around. It's actually a root motivation. A root motivation for why many of us do good, give to charity, or even come to church. You know, just want to cover our bases. Keep cancer at bay. Make sure nothing horrible happens to us. The religious view of suffering has appeal. It fits the American understanding of earning something or our innate childhood sense of fairness. Kids in the room, I'm going to let you in on something, okay? On Christmas Eve, on Christmas Eve, many parents are terrified. Many parents are terrified because they realize the gift piles are not equal. And little Tommy, who may struggle with long division, is all of a sudden on Christmas morning going to become Einstein. He will figure it out. He will know the numbers do not line up, the dollar amounts do not line up, the sheer volume of gifts do not line up. He will know. He will become the smartest mathematician in the room because his sister's pile is bigger. And at 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve, it's too late. Mom starts wrapping up things. Here, have some wine glasses. It's just what you needed. (laughs) See, we all have that innate sense of fairness. The way things ought to work. The religious view of suffering also gives us a sense that we are in control. So long as things are going well, and I'm doing pretty good, I can keep tragedy, even sickness, at bay. The book of Job, as you read through it, though, is pretty clear. Pretty much any sense of control is false. You see, the problem with the religious view of this world and of suffering comes when suffering actually comes. Because then we're left with who's to blame and how in the world can I get out of this suffering? And then we're constantly wondering, am I being good enough? Am I praying hard enough? Do I have enough faith? When will this be removed from me? And you can never be assured that you've done enough to avoid God's hammer. This is a wrong view of God, of the nature of life, because it is not in line with the gospel. We do not read the book of Job in isolation. We read it across the whole of the Bible, and we read it in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We read scripture with a gospel lens, with a gospel view of suffering. The gospel view of suffering is this. Suffering was not the intention of creation, but rather the effect of the fall. In other words, the world that we live in is not as it was intended or designed by God. The fall, of course, is this. Adam and Eve sin. Don't think of sin the way we often do, which is being bad. Rather, think of it in what actually happens in the garden. Adam and Eve reject God. They reject God as God, choosing to seek to be God on their own. 
And as a result, all humanity is separated from God. And as a result, creation itself is broken. Evil, pain, death are not God's design. Sin unravels God's intention. Sin is taking the key and jamming it into the tire rather than putting it in the ignition. And the Bible says all of us are sinful. All of us are apart from God. And as a result, all of us experience the wrath of God, even now, because of our broken relationship with him and in this world. And the question from a gospel view is, do you actually believe this? Do you actually believe that all are sinful and apart from God, and that includes even you? To really have a gospel view must start with having a view of our sinfulness, of my sinfulness. But do you view your own sinfulness in relation to others? You know, compared to others, I'm basically good. Or I'm not as bad as. Like you look around the school and you see kids who are worse than you. If you have any sense of that, any sense that you are better than or not as bad as the people on your street, or at least, you know, one or two of the people on your street, that's the religious view. It's not the gospel. It's a view that may work when things are going well, but it is a house of cards when suffering comes. The gospel says we are all sinful. I am no better than any of you. But the gospel says God has come to suffer for us and deal with our evil and sin. In the incarnation at Christmas, we get God entering suffering and brokenness fully. God with us. God as one of us. Jesus. And on the cross, he fully bears the fall and our sin in himself. Tim Keller, in the book Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, talks about the bystanders, and what they said to Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. They said, he saved others but can't save himself. But those bystanders did not realize he could save others only because he did not save himself. Only through weakness and pain did God save us and show us in the deepest way possible the infinite depths of his grace and love for us. We've said this before, I'll say it again. This is the gospel. We, you and I, we are more sinful than we're willing to admit. But we are more loved through Jesus Christ than we dare to imagine. Both of those must be true. To know the full love of God, you need to admit the full sin of you and fall upon the full mercy of Jesus Christ. Saving faith is not, is not going to church or being good. It's looking to the cross of Christ alone to justify your existence, to give you hope. 
Tim Keller pointing to the cross again in this book suggests the cross assures us of what is not the reason for our suffering. It cannot be that God does not love us because he gave himself up for us. And his love will never leave us. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8, which we read. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of it. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, no suffering, no pain, no grief will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When faced with suffering and sickness and death, knowing this God, knowing the God, knowing the God of the gospel is critical. Gospel faith is hope in the one who surpasses all of our circumstances, who has given us and will give us and continues to give us all that we truly and eternally need, himself. That's the gospel view. I've been speaking a little bit philosophically about suffering, faith, the gospel, God of the Bible, and you know what? It's not always helpful just to do that. Sometimes it's helpful to hear from somebody who has lived through it. And so the second half, or the second portion of this sermon today, is actually what we call a God in life. I'd actually like to invite Brian Whistler forward, who talked to me about some of his own experiences with suffering, and it was reminding me of things that he had told me years ago. So Brian Whistler, come on forward as I break our stand here. Um, Brian is married to Margaret. They have three kids. I'm going to put you over here. Okay. Um, he's married to Margaret. They have three kids. Two of them are off in college. Uh, one of them is uh, here with us. And uh, there we go. Brian, uh, Brian was actually a critical part of the starting of this church. He was on the original church council. And he was a part of a very, very small group that included Corky and Brian Berry. And the three of them, along with me, went through a church planting manual to help formulate the basic ideas of this church before it started. But the reason why you're up here today is not because of that. It's actually because of things that you've gone through in your life. There, you grew up going to church. You grew up, uh, you know, basically as a Christian, the way most of us think about it. But some things happened in your life that began to fundamentally shift and change your trust in God, your view of God, and transform the way you think about it. So tell us some of the things that you experienced. Sure. Thanks, Johnny. Um, I guess at the outset, I should say that... Um, I think everybody has a story of suffering, and um, it's important for me to preface this by saying I'm, I'm mindful that there are much greater stories or heavier stories. I think about our friend Brian and, and what Brian and Holly have endured recently, and I'm aware of other circumstances here that are very, very heavy. So uh, mine is just one of many and, and probably uh, less uh, significant in some respects. But So as Johnny said, I... Um, my story is in, uh, one of, of that person you mentioned as goodness. Uh, goodness was the theme of the early life. Um, I grew up in a kind of a Norman Rockwell, uh, leave it to Beaver family. Um, in fact, my dad actually looked like Ward Cleaver, for those of you who remember. 
And, and, and my mother delivered my father his newspaper and his slippers every night after work. And we tried to continue that in my home as well. So, um, but I, um, but, but, but goodness was, was um, I can't begin to tell you how much of a theme that was. I was enormously well-churched, um, kind of almost ridiculously so. And, uh, and unfortunately, the gospel was not part of that. But we, I think there was this implicit understanding that goodness will keep things at bay, bad things. And so I was certainly a stranger to suffering and pain and hardship. Um, and I certainly understood that those things should be kept at bay. And I think I felt like things were working very well. So, um, so in, in uh, the early part of 1980, I'm a junior in high school. And um, I guess you can do the math. I'm in my 50s. And so I, uh, uh, I get, I'm in class one day in school. And I get a call in the middle of class. And most of you know, if you get a call in the middle of class, something is very wrong. And I knew it wasn't discipline because I was too good for that. So I, uh, my, my uncle had arrived to pick me up and told me that my mother had had an accident. She had been bicycling with her best friend. She fell off her bicycle. And uh, we found her in the hospital. She was in a coma as a result of an aneurysm. And she passed away four months later. So you can imagine kind of the, um, as Keller calls it, the God quake. Uh, that, that perhaps would have been. But for me, that was a, I, I didn't have the tools. I, I, didn't, I wasn't equipped. I just wanted to get past that because that was a bad thing. It was messy. I couldn't control it. I didn't know what to do with it. And the gospel was not speaking in my life at the time. So... Uh, my father, who said he'd never get married again, was walking down the aisle one year later and um, married a family friend who lost her husband. And uh, she had two sons, and so everything was put back together again, kind of like the Brady Bunch. And so I thought, well, that's the way it should be. Everything goes back together. We move past that hard time. I have a new family. All is well. I had my one deal, right? I had my one uh, bad thing. So fast forward 15 years later, um, I'm starting a family. I've got this wonderful family. I've got a great career, children. Things are going well. I'm in my first house. It's December of 1995, and, um, and I listened to a Keller sermon uh, in, in December about the true meaning of Christmas, and he's trying to urge um, us to consider that Christmas really isn't about a Hallmark card of, of good and fuzzy feelings. It's really about uh, the anticipation of the cross. And he urged the listeners to this uh, message to pray that this coming year would be a year of, of real sober thinking about what, what Christmas is really about and how that informs our life and our understanding of the cross. So I, I, I prayed as, as after I heard that message. It was uh, before, shortly before Christmas. Uh, I'm feeling good about Christmas, but I'm also feeling this is a good thing to do, kind of set the tone for the year, um, and ask the Lord to show me in the coming year some new things. So December 30th, before the new year turned the corner, I got a call from my stepbrother who said that uh, my father, my stepmother, and my stepbrother's two children uh, were flying back in my father's plane, it was his hobby, and they all passed away in a plane crash. And so you can imagine the, um, 
the impact of that in so many ways. Uh, you know, I, the first, I thought I was done. Then I had this second God quake, which sadly I didn't have the resources in the first to, to manage it, but happily in the second one, second instance I did. And this is an event obviously that the Lord used in a, in a particular way to, to draw me to, my, to himself, to teach me um, about who he was and about him being a father to the fatherless. Um, and I think um, there's kind of three kind of three themes that I would, I would kind of identify uh, from, from my, my journey and my story. Uh, the first is um, wisdom versus knowledge. And I think this may have been touched on a couple of weeks ago with, uh, in the sermon. Um, as Johnny mentioned today, too, you know, we want to know why. We want to know the answers. We want to know the reasons. But I think what I've come to find is that suffering is more about wisdom than about knowledge uh, in the sense that um, the Lord wants to produce perseverance and character, as his word says. And then there's another real um, kind of intriguing, I think, profound um, passage from Ecclesiastes that's always struck me is um, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, which is really upside down, right? That's just, the, obviously the world wouldn't get that. It doesn't make any sense. But I think that's part of, of this understanding of suffering. There's a profound sense of we're going to learn a lot more. We're going to get, understand how to be wise, how to be caring, how to have a heart at a house of mourning, a funeral. We're going to learn a lot more at a funeral than we're going to learn at a party. And I think we can all kind of get that. Uh, the second one is a sense of, second theme would be kind of a sense of dependency. Um, so my father was my anchor. I have incredibly amazing memories, fond memories of my dad. I, he, he was the voice of affirmation and encouragement and blessing um, and was just my, my chief supporter in all that I did. And so, um, you know, so, so this sense of dependency, my, 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 my grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is perfected in weakness, uh, is, is this incredible verse about, you know, we're all weak, we're all needy, and particularly in times of suffering. And so obviously the Lord wants us in this relationship to be fully dependent on him. Sometimes he uses suffering to do that. Other times he uses other ways. So I don't want you to be fearful. But, but that's a big part of it, I think, is a sense of, of, of dependency. And then finally, sonship. And Johnny has been good to teach us a lot about sonship and daughtership, what it means to be a son and a daughter and not a slave in the gospel. And as I said, losing a father, there's, there's lots wrapped up there, in, in, as you, even as an adult, and certainly as a child, uh, when you lose a parent. And I know there are people in here that have experienced that as well. Um, but, but the sense of, as he says in Psalm 68, uh, I am a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows, and I set the lonely in families. So whether you are fatherless or motherless or spouseless or whatever you find yourself to be, childless, cling to that. Cling to that sense that I am your, your father, I am your perfect father. And my goal is to be in deep relationship with you, for you to trust me. Even if you don't have the understanding and the knowledge, I'm going to equip you 
to see you through whatever you encounter. So those are my thoughts. I, Brian, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's particularly helpful to see and hear how God ministered to you. He ministered to you through people, which you shared, and through his word and revealing himself to you as the father to the fatherless. Yeah. And it enables you to put your dependence in him, to trust in him because he is a trustworthy God. I think when we have these notions of God that are built out of you know, Zen koan statements or the latest thing that Oprah has written down as opposed to who he actually is revealed in scripture and in Jesus Christ, we're not sure if we should trust him. But when you see this God who is the father to the fatherless, the one who comes and dies for us, you realize you can turn to him and he is there to embrace you, right? That's right. And there was, I guess there was one thing I, I left out and that was a sense of as you're, as you're going through struggles, whatever it is, um, what I've learned in terms of grieving well, which I think was really preached on nicely the other week was this sense of freedom and liberation that you have in the gospel to, to grieve, to struggle without the answers, and to struggle for quite some time. I was in, a, I was in, a, in what C.S. Lewis called an invisible blanket for two, over two years after my father passed away. The rest of the world's ready to move on, and you're not, and you, you were wishing they would stay with you, but this sense of praying, uttering, groaning, uh, there's, there's liberation in that, and that's part of the, the grieving process. Um, and I think that's really part of what the gospel is about, too, is this sense of sonship, this cry to Abba Father, and um, appreciating that. The gospel that we talk about here, and we don't just mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we mean the story of Jesus Christ. The gospel of love and of grace is rich resources for dealing with suffering. We may not understand the why of the suffering we deal with, but the gospel gives us a deeper view of God, a more accurate view of ourselves, and access to the true source of meaning and assurance and hope. And the gospel of grace is this. We rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that, when you do that, it has the power to enable you to love people who aren't suffering when you are. And that's hard to do when you're suffering and other people seem to be thriving. You can love them. It enables you to forgive perpetrators of evil, even when you have experienced it at their hands, and to face suffering with peace and joy and without bitterness, guilt, and blame. This is because, even as Brian was sharing, the gospel means we are assured of what we need most. We have a father who loves us, the immeasurable love of a creator who gave himself for us, which is what we truly need. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for allowing Brian to share with us some things that have been very serious and real and a part of his own ache and pain and journey. Lord, allow these things to point us to the God who loves us, who is Father to each of us. Prepare us for the suffering that we will deal with, to be friends to those around us who are struggling, to deal with the suffering that we're in right now. Reveal yourself to us, the God who loves us and offers us himself. In Jesus' name, amen.
So 